Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Mental Disorder Podcast. I'm Jonah Davids, and my guest today is William J. Fleming. William holds a PhD in sociology from the University of Cambridge and is currently a postdoctoral research fellow at Oxford University's Wellbeing Research Center. William, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Jonah. So I invited you on today because I read your new research article that's come out in the Journal of Industrial Relations, and the article is called Employee Well-Being Outcomes from Individual-Level Mental Health Interventions, Cross-Sectional Evidence from the United Kingdom. Now, we'll get into what the study is about in a second, but I first want to know what got you interested in studying workplace mental health, you know, workplace well-being, that kind of thing. Yeah, so really, I I became interested in it through, um, yeah, just really starting off with my PhD. Um, the the PhD program that I was on it was actually originally advertised with connection to a data set, um, which is the one that I analyze in my paper, and with a broad remit to analyze work and health and well-being. Um, and obviously, you know, in these programs, you don't need to use the data all the time, um, but this sort of gave me a good opportunity to um, yeah, investigate the relationships between people's work and their well-being. Uh, previously to that, I had been interested in uh, health and health policy. And so the workplace, or, you know, even at that early stage, I was, I was seeing how those sort of policy areas of, of labor and health were becoming increasingly entwined. Um, so that was sort of where it, where it started from. And then as in the early, in the early days of my uh, reading and trying, trying to develop uh, research questions that um, I wanted to investigate, there was, I sort of became aware of the, the raft of um, businesses that were advising on well-being, the, um, the number of studies in work psychology on relationships between work and well-being and how you can prove it. Um, and then at the same time, there was a, a bifurcated sociological discussion of these phenomena and of the entwinement with work and health um, that was very critical of this entwinement. Um, and so I was partly just seeing a growing sphere, a growing space where people were doing lots of research and with a potential for a lot of policy impact and improving people's uh, working lives. But then the other, and combined with the opportunity of this uh, data that I was given through the PhD funding, and then also sort of inspired by these critical discussions in sociology, which I was finding very compelling and then quite frustrated by the yeah, this bifurcation between these two, the two fields studying the same phenomena, which didn't interact at all, which were using completely different methodologies, different epistemologies, just completely different uh, political bases. And so that was really how I became interested. And that's where I in the paper that I recently published and in all my research, I'm trying to pull together and straddle these these two um, subfields, really, of work and well-being. So maybe you can quickly give us a bit of a, um, a background in what is sort of the sociologists or the critical sociologists' critique of the kind of merging of, you know, the, the workplace and health or, or well-being. I mean, a lot of people would I think view that as positive and say, isn't it good that, you know, employers care about their workers and isn't that what we've always been, you know, fighting for as if you're a labor person or something like that? Yeah, I think that the primary cynical perspective on it is that well-being narratives and policies are applied for essentially covert social control of workers. 
So the sociology of work has, of, since the 70s has, has been primarily concerned with uh, consent and coercion at work. And this was then extended um, to the rise of sort of explicit concern with health and well-being uh, to say, oh, this is about managing workers to be more productive, to be um, at work more often, to embody corporate values of um, hard work. And it sort of constructs an ideal worker who fits with um, corporate ambitions and aligns uh, how people live their lives. Uh, and also on a very individualistic basis, so tying with some of the uh, Foucauldian critiques of the entrepreneurial self at work and uh, that we must um, enact and aspire to always be better selves um, and how this is particularly apparent in the workplace uh, as a way to extract, um, yeah, to extract increased productivity. So that's sort of primarily where the, um, where this critique comes from. Uh, also, by rather than taking well-being as an end in itself, which is fundamental to that's the sort of main normative commitment of most social science is that you know trying to improve people's lives. Um, and rather than taking that as the end in itself, it was sort of instrumentalizing that for uh, economic gain. Um, and there's a few other critiques around there, but those those are really the main. That's the main crux of it, and that it was. So it comes down to. Uh, yeah, this cynical perspective on why management were deploying these narratives and uh, types of policies that come under the name of well-being. So maybe then we can go a bit into the histories. When do these kinds of mental health in the workplace programs or well-being initiatives in the workplace, when do these become a thing and, and sort of what inspires their development? Uh, I think it really goes back quite a while to the early days of industrial capital in England. Uh, industrial capitalism in England um, with the British Quakers and their management models. Um, and, you know, that was people who live in a community where you work for a specific organization, you live with your colleagues, and everything is provided for you. Your healthcare is given to you in this environment. There's the church. Um, and yeah, it was a sort of humanistic model of capitalist management from, uh, in, for example, uh, Cadbury's is the, is the is sort of the quintessential example there. And so that was that kind of paternalistic management strategy as um, the end, in opposition to uh, more hard-faced forms of industrial management in the, in the 19th century. So that was where, that's where it really began. Um, and then you can sort of fast forward a little bit and around the early 20th century, um, there's some great studies of some of the management techniques for uh, factories in England. Um, there's one in particular of a matchmaking factory where it was in, I think it was the 1910s and it's an all uh, female workforce. And within that factory, there's a superintendent whose, whose job is to manage the health of the workforce. And there's uh, access to all your meals in, in there. There's dentistry, there's healthcare. Um, the superintendent would visit your house if you weren't at work to check on your welfare. And so already you can see some of these ideas which are popular in contemporary corporate wellness programs were already implemented in proto-forms over 100 years ago. Um, then it gets a bit messier. Um, in the US, uh, a lot of wellness has been tied in with employer-sponsored health insurance, um, which really emerged in, I guess, uh, I'm, not, I'm not 
great on my history, but sort of around the, the breakdown of the New Deal and the emergence of collective bargaining to get to achieve health insurance on an employer-employee relations perspective rather than publicly provided, for example, in the UK. Uh, and so then that insurance model over decades, insurance companies and employers try and optimize that model and make it more and more cost efficient. So you get a lot of preventative care and health promotion gets all wrapped up into those, uh, the incentives there. Um, but then there's also more intellectual history of it uh, regarding uh, management, the dominant management schools. Um, so from tailored scientific management, trying to think, oh, you know, how can we optimize how work is done? Then through the, the beginning of the Harvard Business School and uh, the sort of human relations movement and more towards humanistic management practices. Uh, then also through the emergence of the stress paradigm uh, to understand yeah, people's reactions to the environment. Uh, so then there's kind of the epistemic aspect too, which is all the the management schools and how they think, how should people be organized? How should people um, be managed? Um, and with, yeah, explicit humanistic ideals, but with the intent of maximizing uh, output for the sort of good of society. Um, so, it's all, so it's tied in with that. And then into the, as you get towards the end of the 20th century, there is a big emergence of the health promotion movement. Um, lots of NGOs were involved in that, so, you know, the World Health Organization, the UN, and that was really about trying to shift healthcare to more preventative models about, um, you know, well-being as well as ill-being and treating uh, treating illness. Um, so as the more public health space, and that fused with these more humanistic management approaches, um, and that's when you see the formulation of modern modern wellness programs, especially in the US with the, um, with the employer insurance model. Um, in the UK, where I'm based and where I do most, you know, where most of my research is based, it was around, there was quite a seminal policy paper came out in 2008, uh, which was really setting the stall for thinking about work and health as a combined policy priority and a combined policy area. Uh, and within that, there was uh, recommendations and incentives for businesses to invest in the health and well-being of the workers. Claims of the business case, there'd be a great return on investment in terms of reduction in absenteeism, presenteeism, productivity. Uh, and also with that comes a lot of research funding. Uh, and so then you get a lot of uh, creation of academic evidence to support best practice. Uh, and this gradually filters into um into corporate spaces and into large employers, um, often through consultants and through um, through uh, policy and evidence sort of curation bodies, uh, and then we sort of get up to where we are now, where especially post pandemic, there's a just total uh, ubiquity of discussion around uh, workers' uh, well being and their health, and especially around mental health. Um, so sorry, that was quite a long. Um, history, but I've no, actually no, no. never been that's, able to. That's why yeah, I've here. actually never been able to go through it all from the start to the finish before, um, because most people don't really care about the um, the, the factories in 1910 and 1920 when they're thinking about um, health and well-being at work. But a lot of the principles and a lot of the practices have really been around for a long time, and some of the the ideals and management have been development for over over 100 years now well it's interesting because just tracking the history like you're saying you can see it moves these things move from being more collective to more individualistic right so it goes from the company is like your father 
taking care of, you know, your most basic kind of needs to where we're at today, where it's more like we're going to give you these micro interventions to target like your specific endpoints that you specifically need. And that might that might be different than what your coworker, you know, next to you needs, right? I think you're right about the the more in, the individualization of the process and a lot of uh, critical perspectives sort of see employer action on um, on well-being as emblematic of neoliberal modes of management and the responsabilization of health within individuals rather than as uh, state or um, public responsibilities. So it's definitely tied with that. The, the idea that the strategies are tailored to sp- individual and their specific needs that sort of appears to be happening, but then you often see um, off-the-shelf type interventions such as CBT, which is highly standardized, or mindfulness programs, which run through digital apps. So it's very standardized again. So it's individualistic, but also standardized. And in some ways, it homogenizes experience at the same time as individualizing. So can you talk a bit about, you know... um... Today, what are the different sort of types of these um, mental well-being interventions, right? Because in your paper, you kind of, I think, divide them into maybe three categories of, of some kind of, you know, some are about like almost like therapy, other kinds are relaxation. And then I think there was a third one I'm, I'm not quite recalling, but maybe you do. Yeah, so it is quite important to distinguish between the different types of practices. And this has not happened in some of the media coverage of my paper, actually. Um, where there's, there's a sort of blanket rejection of, uh, oh, well-being interventions don't do anything. I have a very broad perspective on what counts as a well-being intervention. Um, it's maybe helpful to think of, first of all, the level at which something is an intervention. So the main distinction is between individual and organizational. Um, you are you trying to directly change the behaviors, mindsets, uh, activities of an individual employee or are you trying to change organizational policies, practices, uh, working conditions, uh, just the general functioning of workplaces? So that, but then you could also maybe look at um, team or group level interventions around, especially with more project based organizations. Um, that's another level you can, could consider it, or even a higher public policy level intervention. For example, a right to disconnect. That would be a sort of top down level. So for now, let's talk just about the individual level ones. And then towards the end of the conversation, we'll move to the some of the higher level ones that um, you don't analyze in the paper, but you do sort of yeah. reference at the end. Yeah. So when it comes to individual level interventions, I tend to break it down into those that are universal and promotional. So they will improve the mental health of all workers and anyone can find benefit. And these are the types of programs I've evaluated in my paper. And so they can teach uh, personal mood management skills or time management skills. It's about developing individuals' psychological resources, such as coping mechanisms, that kind of thing. And so that's what I've been evaluating. Then the other stream of intervention is more therapeutic or um, ameliorative. Um, So that might be uh, counseling that's offered through your workplace or even more advanced psychiatric uh, care, which, or um, therapy and this type of initiative. And so these are very distinct types of practices um, which have to be evaluated in different ways and the the motivations, the why they're offered and the effects are going to be very different. Um, And it's those promotional ones are the ones I've been mostly focusing on. So let's talk a bit about the 
motivations. Obviously, there's a big history to it, but in 2024, why are companies offering you know workplace mental health interventions, whether that's like therapy or whether that's um, a mindfulness class, or even there's a lot to do now with apps and things like that. Um, and also, you know, productivity improvement stuff like coaching, right, which is perhaps self-explanatory why they might offer that. But um, in their own words, you know, how do businesses justify these uh, decisions? Uh, well, I actually have another paper which um, might not ever see the light of day, but that specifically looks at what managers state as their reasons for why they invest in, in health and well-being. Uh, that's sort of, it's more, more broad than just mental health, but it all comes under the same umbrella. And within that, so actually, there are quite a few reasons why you could theorize why they might. And it might be, yeah, around uh, productivity. It might be about recruitment and retention. Um, it might be about corporate image. It might be best based off of um, regulation from governments. Or um, it might be, yeah, even even there's some suggestion that improving health cultures imp- uh, reduces the number of accidents in the workplace. So there's quite a lot of reasons why you might want to offer it. But when I actually looked at employers' stated reasons for why they do invest, it, it was far and away it was to do with productivity. That's, that's right. Um, I think the survey data had was about 500 employers, and it's something like 350 of them stated something about improved productivity or engagement or reduction in absenteeism and presenteeism, so the costs of employment and the costs of poor health among among workers. So it's really about economic priority. Uh, and this has been partly a result of quite a successful business case that's been put forward by um, people evaluating uh, evaluating well-being programs and also uh, generally trying to improve the quality of people's working life. You know, the idea that happy workers work harder. And so there's been quite a successful business case narrative around this investment. Uh, surprisingly, recruitment and t- retention wasn't one of the popular reasons why employers offer various well-being initiatives, which I think, I think as job perks, as job benefits, that that's the most promise for a lot of the more uh, low-key uh, wellness ideas. You know, apps or uh, in, so more physical health domain, gym memberships, cycle-to-work schemes. These sort of low-key, maybe low-hanging fruit health and well-being interventions. They're nice job perks. And actually that, I sort of support that. That sounds quite nice. You know, I would, I would rather work for somewhere where I get a free gym membership and have a cycle to work scheme. Um, but yeah, it's not, it's not high. Recruitment retention is not high among, among the reasons why people mm. stay. Well, that is expected. And I think, um, in terms of this business case, right? I mean, I, I haven't looked that much into this, but like I've read, you know, a lot of management consulting firms and things will put out papers about this and they do like the ROI on workplace mental health initiatives and stuff. And um, I've looked at some of them. The numbers seem kind of a bit sketchy of like, you know, if you really dig into it, it's like, well, based on the study we did of like four companies of which, you know, one dropped out, it seems like we're after four years, you get like an ROI or something. That's that's pretty decent. And, you know, I like I'm open to the idea that there could be something in there, but um, it, it often seems to be more like, yeah, like more like this is a case being made of, oh, we should all be doing this. It's going to save money. 
versus this is something that empirically we really know like works well and work well to save money. Even. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree with all of your points there, actually. Um, the research right now, our numbers is very sketchy. Um, and if you go and find the working paper version of my paper, I do spend um, an, an inordinate amount of time critiquing one of the main documents that puts out an ROI number on, on these interventions. Um, it, I took it out after some... Uh, harsh peer review. Um, but if you're interested in just how fuzzy a lot of these numbers are, um, you can go and go and check out. I think often it'll come in the guise of systematic review and meta-analyses. And then you start digging down and it comes down to one or two papers, which were conducted, you know, and the study was conducted 20 years ago with an insurance company, with a company who pays for the insurance company. And um, yeah, and then it'll be very different types of practices that are actually being evaluated and then all gets mashed in together and you get, oh, four pounds for every one pound spent on mental health. Um, and so there, there is a, a research quality issue there, um, definitely. In terms of the, the, the reasons what, for the prevalence of this business case, I am a bit more sympathetic um, to why there's such promotion of this. Um, there's going to be different groups of employers interested in employee well-being. And there's going to be those that are very convinced already that there's maybe a paternalistic responsibility of employers, or maybe that this is something that their workforce has specifically asked for. There will be a group who are directly responding to concerns around, uh, around how people are doing at work. But, and then there'll be those who are maybe who are swayed by arguments of evidence and of, uh, so policy pressure and maybe from consultants. And then there's going to be another group that think it's all of a waste of time. They're just there to employ people and get the job done and, and, and make money. And that, that last group is going to be tough to convince. So there's a strategic element to the, to this business case as well. I am a bit more sympathetic to you when it comes to more hard nosed uh, companies. Well, let's talk about your paper. I guess the best way to kind of set this up is to say that um, you used the Britain's Healthiest Workplace Survey. You looked at, I believe, uh, two waves of data. You're basically just looking at, okay, our, or I should, I should backtrack. So this, this survey is a huge survey. It has uh, almost 50,000 respondents uh, belonging to uh, over 200 organizations. And the survey basically asks workers, okay, have you participated in any mental health or well-being uh, programs, interventions at work? And then you basically do the comparison of, okay, when we look at people who have versus those who haven't, is there, you know, a noticeable difference? And um, I mean, maybe you can sort of talk about a bit what your, what your method was and how you did the comparisons and what sort of um, outcome measures from that survey you used to judge. Uh, whether somebody was, you know, more or less mentally healthy or had higher well-being. Yeah, so you've basically summarized what, what I did, which in the in the most rudimentary form was comparing people's mental health from those who participated with those who didn't. There's a bit more statistical um, jig, so jigging around going on before. I use what we call cluster propensity score analysis, which doesn't sound very sexy on a podcast, but basically it's to try and control a bit more for um, the selection into these types of programs. So obviously, certain people are going to be more likely to engage with the mindfulness program than others. Um, and so by including a raft of uh, of independent variables and covariates of participation, 
you can balance the groups of those who participate and those who don't. Uh, and then it was just about comparing across various outcomes to try and establish whether those who do participate are, are any better off than those who don't. Uh, for a causal inference bust, the, it, that's not going to fly because you're not really drilling down into where the effect is coming, where a potential effect would come from. But as a high level overview and analysis with hundreds of different companies and so many employees and lots of different interventions, it's a useful way to try and to try and evaluate this question. Um, and so I looked at loads of, I looked at quite a lot of different outcomes for whether it would have any benefit. Um, some of the more established work well-being metrics, so job satisfaction, um, also some established psychometric scales. So the short Warwick Edinburgh mental well-being scale, there's a uh, you know, trekked um, burnout scale or work engagement scale, depends who uses it, what they call it. Um, then there's a depression scale. Uh, and I also looked at more uh, subjective perceptions of the work environment. So things like time pressures and management support uh, as more indirect outcomes. Uh, and I say indirect because the stated aim of these mental health programs is that it improves your mental health. So that was where I first of all wanted to evaluate and then actually looking at some of these, um, some of these more indirect outcomes, uh, some slightly different results come out as well. But, um, but, oh, sorry, but I should say overall that the key finding was that those who participate are no better off than, than those who don't. Uh, and this is, there's, there's been a great, a huge reception to this key finding. Um, that seems to have tapped into some wider sentiment around these programs. They got uh, written about in the New York Times, which is, you know, really big. Um, I think, so I just, I have here some of the graphs from the study, which, um, Obviously, listeners can't see, but um, but I'll, I'll link to a link to my write up where I show some of them. And yeah, it's not just, you know, what I like about the study a lot is it's not like you just had one or two outcome measures that you looked at. But I think, you know, at least like 12 and it really runs the range from life satisfaction to job satisfaction to mental health to engagement, you know, stress levels and um, feelings of belonging and being. Uh, you know, on a team and, and all these things. And so you get a really robust sense of how meant these things are uh, in that they're not moving the needle um, on, you know, really any of these measures. The The one exception that you did find, I believe, was volunteering, where if you're volunteering through your workplace, then there were some sort of, you know, mild to modest benefits to some of these things. But I think that was basically it, right? In terms of like anything that clearly was moving the needle. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Volunteering was the one that came out with a fairly resounding positive effect um, or positive estimate, I should say. Um, the volunteering result is, is quite interesting. It does concur with previous studies who have looked at employer-sponsored volunteering opportunities. Um, and it's, it, seems, it seems to make sense that if you get to take time out of work to go and do something with probably a bit more um, social meaning, uh, maybe it's helping in the community, maybe it's pro bono work, that that would probably boost how you're feeling at work. Uh, and often these kind of schemes are more sociable, you might develop new skills. So I think it does make sense and does concur with uh, previous studies. I'm not that interested in it as a result, though. Um, 
I think when when we're talking about workers' mental health, it's about how how can you improve people's experiences of work, and by offering a volunteering program, you're not engaging with with how work is done and working practices. It it, it just exports it outside of the workplace by maybe setting some time aside for some other purpose. Um, and the when I first shared this research a couple of years ago. Um, there was much more interest in that finding, perhaps because everybody's used to focusing on positive results. Um, and, and then this time, when, it, when it's sort of come out now, properly published, uh, there's been less interest in that as a result, but people have still latched onto it as something very promising. Um, but it's not rhetorically, I don't, I, I'm not sure how, how helpful it is actually to focus on volunteering as a way to improve workers mental health i mean in the actual paper you don't like you're not trying to play it up you talk about how it's like a you know a pretty small effect i should say i should say as well in in my paper the main the main methodological issue is selection bias um and whenever so i just take i just take data at one time points whenever you do that it's so difficult to entangle um probably when it's probably bi-directional relationships so for example if you're the people who participate in volunteering opportunities through their work are probably already more likely to engage in that kind of activity. They're probably more pro-social. They're probably more outgoing. Um, so they're, they're the types of people that probably have better mental health anyway. Um, and I, I do my best to tease out uh, these bidirectional effects. I sort of propose different interpretations of these results. Um but that is one thing I would say. I think there's po- even in the positive estimates, I think there probably there there will definitely be remaining selection bias. Well, one thing, or I should say, another thing that you don't, I don't think you touch on this in the paper, but that is probably very important is like say the number of friends you have at work, right, or the relationship you have with your um, coworkers or your boss or something like that, right? Like if you if you go to a job and there's people there you like, I'm sure that's great for your mental health compared to one where you either don't like the people or there are no people. I mean, I have a lot of friends who are, um, as I do, working from home. And except like I mostly work for myself and they're working for some big corporation or something. And they like don't really know anybody because they got hired during the pandemic or just after. And even when they go into work for like a hybrid work day, since they're only going in once or twice a week, it's like they don't really know anybody and they don't really have the opportunity to build those bonds. I just think like that must be terrible for your enjoyment and, and well-being um, at at work. But um, I'm not sure if, if people have researched that more in depth or, or not, but that seems like a common sense kind of thing. Yeah, I think there's lots of people in management who have studied this, I think. It is, it's, you're right, it's not something I, I looked at in the paper. Um, the thing that you've missed, I think, is the sense of solidarity that comes with working with other people. Um, and sometimes in the face of bad jobs, supportive colleagues act as a different kind of resource for getting through the day. So in my paper, I use the job demands resources model of understanding stress. And that's the sort of dominant theory of work stress. Um, the idea that how you feel is to do with an imbalance between the demands that are put on you and the resources that you have in order to cope with those demands. And one of the resources you can have is colleague support. And that might be from a manager, it might be from people on the same level doing the same jobs, it might be a friend that you just happen to have lunch with sometimes, and you, but that actually counts as a social resource and can 
can support you to, um, to deal with work. Um, and I even think back to when I've done uh, minimum wage jobs in, in hospitality and as the, the shift is, is, you know, you're getting absolutely slammed, but you're there with your friends and you're, you're kind of having a good time uh, and, yeah, the sense of camaraderie to getting through the, the, those tough days. Um, so I think you're definitely right. Your paper has basically, you know, just come out or been officially released and it has been getting, like I said, um, a good reception. And I'm curious sort of how you think it's changing, you know, people's minds about about this topic. Because like, so if I'm an employer um, and someone, you know, a, a consultant or something had come to me a long time ago and said to me like, okay, you want your employees to be more productive, you want to save money or, you know, have a good return on investment, et cetera. Um, these mental health programs were that we could bring in, not only will they make your employers happier, healthier, et cetera, but you're also going to earn more money in the long run. Now that sounds like a great investment, right? A great thing. Once you, and then, and then, you know, there are, there's going to be some people who are more like on, you know, the, the left or the critical left who are basically going to say, even if it works, it's bad, right? They're going to say like, even if it actually makes you happier and healthier, um, it's still a form. In, in fact, the benefit of it is in, is a form of social control. And so in some sense, like the more it works, the more you're hooked and the more we don't want your employer to make those decisions. But, you know, you're coming out here and basically saying, um, you know, not only am I, you know, William J. Fleming uncomfortable with this kind of dynamic, but actually it just doesn't work. And so I'm just wondering, like, how you think people have reacted to that so far and, and whether that's causing or how you might imagine that would cause people to sort of you know, rethink their spending on, on workplace mental health and well-being. Yeah, the, the reception to the, to the paper has been pretty incredible considering who I am. You know, I, although, yeah, I'm at Oxford, so there's a lot of institutional cred comes with that. Um, I've just finished my PhD. It's my first proper peer review paper. Um, and it's just every, every single major newspaper, every single English speaking major newspaper has picked up on it. Wow. The, the centrist and liberal and left ones have anyway. None of the right wing newspapers have. Um, and, but it's also got, it went viral on TikTok. And I, you know, LinkedIn for me has been a no go without reading my own name in somebody else's post with emoji bullet points and all of this type of LinkedIn activity that people do. The reception has been a bit overwhelming almost. Um, but I think it's sort of tapped into a wider public sentiment around um, a lot of mental health um, policy in and outside of work. I think there's just been a growing sentiment of lip service within, um, especially within organizations that perhaps yeah, cynically an employer can offer a mindfulness initiative and then hold their hands up saying, oh, you know, we're, we're doing our bit to try and look out for people's mental health. Um, the most egre the most egregious examples for me would be, um, the, the public health service in, in the UK during the pandemic, there was exceptional demands on, on people who are frontline health workers and they were offered um, a free mindfulness app for the, for the year. And as the, the scale of that response to the, to the stresses and demands of people is, is, uh, is ridiculous. And so there, I think there was a growing awareness of this and that seems to be what the, the press interest and the amount of coverage has really tapped into. Uh, that public sentiment anyway. If you go and look at the comments on the New York Times or the Guardian article, it's full of people saying, yeah, give me a pay rise. Um, stop bosses bullying people. Um, 
help me do my job instead of just talking about abstractly talking about well-being. So it does seem to have tapped into that. Um, I think there's also been a an improvement in the management advice around improving well-being at work in the last few years, partly partly because of the pandemic, where it maybe put it into sharper focus, um, and growing awareness among uh, yeah people consulting or people advising on policy, um, occupational health specialists that we have to revert to. Work- focusing on working practices and working conditions and that's fundamentally what makes people um what makes people experience their their work in a more um i guess fulfilling and more uh bearable way um so it's also tied into a bit of a, a bit of a trend that was already happening um because most of the posts that i see from consultants and coaches are saying yes finally somebody's saying it we need to focus on the organization and the workplace culture um, and so that's really good to see and really promising that there seems to be a bit of a shift, but it didn't seem to me as though anyone was saying it too loudly before last year. Well, you know, so there's the sort of material, well, I don't, I don't want to get too like philosophical or whatever, but there, there's, you know, so there's this, we can, if you want, <laughs> well, I, I don't even know if I'm using the term right, but, um, but I was, I was going to say, you know, if you thought, think about like materialism versus idealism, right? Like, there's there's people who are really concerned about just okay we want to make money we have people we need to make feel good as bodies and like so this is going to be a good uh investment for that we're going to get more money we're going to have more you know bio control or whatever over those uh people and you know we can feel good about it because we're also benefiting them so that's that might be one side of the equation but I, I also think there's a very a much more idealistic side that I, I personally don't think we've really gotten over. Even I don't know if we'll get over it even with the help of your paper, which is to say, like, when when people I'm sure people might read your paper and say, oh, yeah, that workplace mental health stuff. It was just totally, you know, bullshit. They didn't really care about me. Right. But I don't think there's that many people who are uh, who become disenthused or disenchanted with the idea that there could be some program or some intervention or something that really does, you know, is really is a game changer. Uh, and I think it's just because I think people really like this idea of almost like word magic of like, okay, if we could just find the right, you know, it's like Jesse single has a book got over there called the, the quick fix, right? Like we could just find the right program, the right intervention, the right message, the right combination of words or of trainings or whatever it might be. Uh, we could solve this massive social problem. And I was just kind of curious, given, you know, you worked on this topic. Um, I mean, what what in your mind is it continues to motivate people psychologically just to continue to believe in that these little interventions, these tiny programs and things for like an individual for one person can just have these these massive, you know, changes in, in behavior or well-being? Yeah, I think it's an interesting discussion. And I have another paper which I'm in the work, which is in the works I'm trying to develop, which is trying to understand, yeah, the ideological function of work well-being as as a narrative and how the how this the how practices fit within that. And I think part of the appeal, well, how, exactly how I frame it in in the paper that I've got is that it's a depoliticized form of labor reform. The idea is that you can improve people's experience with work, but in the least political way possible. And 
So that avoids all contestation, it avoids all uh, collectivization. Trade unions are completely absent from these discussions. Um, there's an avoidance of any regulation um, and a reliance on uh, corporate voluntarism. If you look at the the biggest groups who advocate for work well-being is corporate forums uh, with large organizations who have explicit paternalistic concerns for the well-being of their, of their workers and also economic concerns around working harder. Um, and they're the ones that are leading the charge here. And so it's about, I think, sincere attempts to improve people's experiences of work, but in ways which don't fundamentally alter uh, labor relations. Um, and I think that's why often the, the types of interventions that get proposed are very small scale, because it's very undisruptive. It's easy to offer an app or a, a well-being seminar series that is, you know, a couple, um, a couple of hours, one week, because it doesn't disrupt any of the material foundations of what's going on at work. And it doesn't rely on any external body to moderate it or to regulate it. It's employer-led reform of labor, um, which has, yeah, as you've already said, multiple outcomes around uh, sort of improve, yeah, increased social control and buy-in to work, but also uh, increased productivity. Um, so that's my sort of ideological critique of what's going on here. Um, and we'll see if, it, we'll see if uh, others agree with it um, if, if I get it published. I think something is also going on here and it has to do with kind of like it might be a generational thing i'm not totally sure but um people not wanting to or not believing in making difficult hard trade-offs about you know work and mental well-being i mean his, like for most of human history people understood and you know took as you know granted or whatever like pe people just knew okay if i'm gonna work really really hard it's gonna be difficult and they didn't necessarily think too much about like um i sh you know i should be able to work 80 hours a week but also be feeling great like mental health wise right i just i don't think that was i think people understood there was a trade-off i mean even you know you want to talk about like um unions or something like that right so um take construction right so like if you go to like china you know the construction workers are probably building like six maybe even seven days a week they're probably working extremely hard uh they probably don't have the best mental health but buildings get, you know, built really fast. Uh, here in uh, Toronto, where I live, uh, to build, you know, like a building or a subway or whatever it might be takes like years. And you can constantly, you know, see construction workers taking their sweet time with things and stuff because they have a very strong union. So the union is good for their mental health. I, I have no doubt about that. But again, there's like a trade off between the mental health of the worker and the societal benefit. And, you know, what? so whether it's like somebody who's a consultant who's working like 80 hours a week and still wants to feel mentally super strong, or it's we're talking about, you know, for um, public unions and things like their level of uh, work hours to well-being ratio. I don't know if there's even a thing like that, but I feel like we don't even want to talk about those tough trade-offs, which we should be able to talk about because like if I'm an employer and I want to have a company where everybody works 80 hours a week, I should be able to just say that and but not have to expect that I also have to then make sure everybody feels like totally fine. Um, but by the same token, if I'm an employee, I should know that like, or at least I, I should have the common, maybe it's not common sense anymore, but I should realize that if I take that job, I'm not going to be totally mentally healthy all the time. But I, so I just kind of feel like the conversation around these things is sort of the mental health 
workplace well-being language kind of obscures that there are some jobs that are really, really, you know, taxing and difficult and your mental health is going to be a trade-off of taking that job. Yeah, I think I think there's two definitely two phenomena that, that you're talking about there. Um the first one around people's expectations. I would sort of intuitively agree with you about this idea of trade-offs. I think if I um if I was to go, you know, now you know I've got a, a you know, done my PhD at Cambridge and I've got data science skills. Realistically, I could go and get a job for a big corporate um consultancy firm and get you know, a huge salary. And the trade-off that you make is that you get the big salary. It allows you to have a certain standard of living, but you know you're going to get crushed with um, work demand. Um, but that is something you you basically sign up for. Um, and maybe that is being ob- obscured a little bit. I'm I'm less concerned about about those people because their standard of living, unless in other than in severe cases where um, you know people have. Uh, severe burnout or mental health crises yeah people people do sign up for it and uh, but their material quality of life will be will be pretty good for it um the more worrying end of that poll is perhaps where the where the ground on which a sort of comprom- a personal compromise was made has been shifted so in the uk um right now the news every single week is about crises in in the healthcare in the health service um and there, I think um, people signed up to a public sector role, maybe a nurse, a doctor, uh, you know, even cleaners in hospital where, um, yeah, the pay is probably not as good as other professions, but there you, you're contributing to the, the public service, the public good. Um, and there's a sort of agreement over what's expected that the job is recognized by society and by the, by the organization. But the, the grounds on which that compromise have been shifted because there's not enough staff, so suddenly the demands are much higher. There's been underfunding in specific aspects of care, especially mental health care. Um, and so suddenly the demands are increasing. And so actually the compromise that was made isn't being met um, from the, the employer side. So I think there's, that's sort of my impression there. And so sometimes I'm, I'm a bit cynical like yourself, but then other times I'm very sympathetic to where, um, where the compromise isn't, isn't being met. Um, no, I, I like that example. I like that example because um, it's like, yeah, if you signed up to be a nurse and then suddenly it's, you know, twice or three or four times as difficult and taxing and you have to work longer hours, there's less support. And then all you're offered is like you talked about, right, a mindfulness app or something like that. Right. Um, yeah, that's not like you. That's not like you entered willingly into the situation being like, OK, this is what I'm expecting as the trade off. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then the other, the other point I think you're making about, um, is more of a trade-off between sort of individual and, and society. So maybe, so use the example of construction workers, uh, in China where the, the work is excruciatingly hard. There's, the hours are from Western standards are horrendous, six, seven days, days a week, um, 12 hour days. And so I think what's going on there is a bit of a trade-off between the individual well-being and then the benefit to society. Um, so the amount of the economic growth of China shows is paid off. The amount of people who've been lifted out of poverty, the the quality of healthcare and education is far, far superior to how it was in decades. But lots of people have really suffered to get to that position. And so actually, 
there, I think it's more of a trade-off between a sort of individualistic idea of being a more of a sort of uh, societal one, um, which speaks to more. There are different philosophical models for what we mean by well-being, and some are very hedonic, and it's about your well-being and what you feel about your life. Whereas others is maybe more objective, and is is this a life worth living? Is this a good life? Um, and that, and there are different ways to get to a high level of both of those forms. Yeah, and I think too, like um, I feel like in some case, or in some sense, China under Xi Jinping has been trying to backtrack a bit and kind of realizing, like, okay, now. That we're doing better, we need to care more about like economic inequality or um, the birth rate is obviously like the biggest issue for them and things like that. And but they've kind of set themselves up, and it's like no, I don't think it's a fault of their own. I mean, other countries have done the same thing of just like we're our culture is so oriented on growth and on working hard that nobody really wants to like you know keep going or have more kids or get into that more kind of middle class lifestyle because they don't really feel like they can like how can you you know do that when you just have to work all the time and not only that but then there's social expectations and all these things and you know korea and you know japan to a lesser extent has similar issues so yeah it's it's not like where you know where you put the where the line should be on individual versus collective well-being and stuff can be very misleading it can change over time and it's uh it's not always obvious um well, let me let me kind of ask you this question. So what do you sort of see then as the future of, you know, workplace mental health, workplace well-being at this point? Cuz you've said okay, consultants are starting to come around to this idea of like maybe it's more about organizational change. Uh or, you know, some people would say it's more about labor change or whatever it might be. Um but what what kind of things do you think in the future might emerge that potentially could actually make a, a bigger difference to the well-being of employees? Yeah, I think the, the first step is what we spoke about probably at the beginning, which is really trying to divide more therapeutic strategies from more promotional strategies. Um, so when somebody is maybe struggling with depression or some other form of mental illness, and that's perhaps the only way that they're able to get access. Um, and then when there's strategies to try and improve how the whole workforce is feeling and how they're all doing the work. So I think that will probably be, well, I hope that is going to be the first distinction that should be very clear um, and which is not always. Um, in the medium term, I think there will be, and already we can see that there's a shift towards thinking about um, yeah, improving, improving job quality. Job quality is the main framework that industrial relations scholars use and the International Labour Organization use. Um, and the idea is that you improve people's life by improving the quality of jobs. And I think there will be a shift towards, again, another shift towards uh, improving work. And I, and this is basically, this is basically why I argue in my paper as well, that we need to focus on, on working practices. Um, and, in in the NAGS project that I'm putting out with my colleagues in Oxford, uh, we've tried to pull together. We've done yeah, so we've done a systematic review with the with the idea of pulling together um, everything that's out there on how to improve work, um, and not just trying to treat individuals in, in isolation. Um, and and there, there are quite obvious things um, around. Uh, 
job control and flexibility. And there's some great studies, for example, um, Aaron Kelly and Phyllis Moen's book, uh, Overload, which won, uh, all the, all the sociology prizes uh, in 2022. And that was really a study of how if you just give people um, more flexibility around when they do their job, um, they're able to manage their work and family imbalances and demands. Um, so the schedule control, uh, also in, including, uh, employee voice and decision making. So this could be quite small decisions over, oh, how are we going to do this task? But it could be more around policies. Um, and that's actually quite a political intervention as well. Um, even just improving the monitoring of stress at work, um, can have a big impact. Uh, you can have stress audits where, which are, you know, a huge battery of questions trying to identify where, what are the key stresses and demands on people at work. Uh, promoting, yeah, uh, the, I won't, I won't, uh, I won't read it like a list, but yeah, we've really tried to put together everything that we can find that's already been published on how to improve, um, people's experience of work and, and how they do their job. Um, rather than just targeting, oh, let's make everybody happy. We think, oh, how do we improve people's control at work, their autonomy at work, their, um, their learning opportunities at work, the management support mechanisms. How do you improve that? And if you improve that, then you actually improve. How people feel, um, and so I, I, that's that's sort of where I see the the medium term going, and the the general consensus from a lot of the discussion in the last month since my article came out that that does seem to be where it's pointing towards, um, and there are some fairly big, uh, yeah, I guess publicly backed schemes around this. So in in the US, there's Total Worker Health, uh, which is taking a more occupational health approach. Um, so I'm fairly, I, yeah, I'm actually now much more optimistic about, about the future than, than I was before, uh, before my paper actually got published, which is very good. That's pretty great. Um, it's, it's awesome to have something, you know, put out there and then you're seeing, you know, returns on that. Um, you know, one thing that I've kind of wondered about is whether a lot of people feeling, um, you know, less motivated or unhappy or, you know, even sort of depressed at work. Sometimes I wonder if increasingly it just has to do with the kind of, you know, jobs and stuff that people are doing where, um, I don't know, I, I, I often meet people who just, they don't really feel like their job matters at all. And, and maybe in some sense it has to do with people are more narcissistic now. And so we care more about like, what am I, am I really making a difference with my job or something? But I think people are less kind of fulfilled or content by the idea of, yeah, I'm just, you know, putting one little brick in the wall. And they increasingly see that as kind of a mundane, meaningless task, even if the wall is, you know, important. Well, that's, I guess, that's the, the bullshit jobs thesis. Kind of, it? yeah. Um, from yeah. David Graeber. Um, which is... It's quite controversial. My my PhD supervisor actually published the debunk of bullshit jobs. Um, I think I've read that. So the so the debunk basically says that if you actually look at people who we would believe to have bullshit jobs, so somebody who's like an administrator or something, they actually often have the highest levels of of meaning. Yeah, exactly. and the, in and it's sort of the people who are you know doing the jobs that we might think matter the most, like being a nurse or something like that, are the ones getting burned out and. Uh, something like that, right? Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, they they look at sur survey evidence and, um, they, yeah, they find actually there's a very small proportion of people who who really when 
when they're asked about it in social surveys, it's so quite a formal um, response environment. Um, very few people say that their job is meaningless. Even if maybe when they're hanging out with their friends on a, on a Friday night, it's they're, they, they're a bit sick of it. But in general, I, I, it's something like 5% in most European countries, I think, that say their job is meaningless. And often that's in poor quality jobs, where it's low pay and you have really low job control. Um, but then there was then, you maybe, you maybe missed it then, then there was a sort of, a bit of a debunk of the debunk as well, which specifically looked at American workers. Um, and this study also published in Work Employment Society showed that American workers, there is a much higher proportion that, um, that feel their job is not contributing to society and not meaningful. Um, so there might, so I think that highlights that there's probably cultural differences between, uh, Europe and, and US around this. Um, and maybe that does speak to some of these issues around, uh, individualization and a sort of de- decline in the awareness of, uh, the benefits of, uh, collective labor, not, not put together, but as everybody contributing to the economy and the economy bringing about um, improvements in people's quality of life. So maybe, maybe that's where there's been a decline. Um, yeah, anyway, there's three tiers of, uh, of arguments. William, uh, so we're running out of time. Um, just tell the listeners, basically, if they want to find your work, uh, what's the best place for them to go? Follow me on Twitter at Will J. Fleming, or uh, you can also follow me on, I guess, LinkedIn, um, which, yeah, as in, academics have disappeared from Twitter, so maybe, uh, maybe that might be more useful, um, or, or everyone can email me as well. They can, they can find me. Just, just Google William Fleming Oxford or something like that. All right. Well, I'll put all those in the show notes. All right. Well, William, you know, I really look forward to reading. It sounds like you've got a couple of papers uh, coming out soon that are all going to be really interesting. Um, so I'm looking forward to reading those. And you know, thank you for coming on the podcast. No, thanks so much for having me.